Well, they're working on the problem. We'll just go off of the sheets that we have. We're going to be kind of working between two PowerPoints. And I don't know if you remember last time, but we're doing an introduction into the book of Joel. And we talked about four different themes. The first theme of the book of Joel was God was going to judge Israel if they broke covenant. We saw that from Deuteronomy 28. We see also the day of the Lord is probably the primary theme of the book of Joel. We also saw that God would one day establish Jerusalem, and that's what we left off last time. And I'll talk a little bit more about that. And then we're going to get into the sending of the Spirit. That's a major theme of the book of Joel, very important one. But before we begin, let's just begin with prayer. We need a lot of it for our, our PowerPoint. <laughs> so let's bow our heads. Heavenly Father, Lord, we do thank you for our day. We thank you that we can gather together under your means of grace to learn more about you. We pray, Lord, that you would enable us to persevere uh, through the study of your scriptures. And we do pray uh, for the people who are helping to fix all these things with our PowerPoint. We pray that these things would work all for the sake of your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. So I want you to turn, if you will, if you have the handout, I'm looking at the handout where we're talking about Jerusalem being established. That's where we had left off last time. And remember I had mentioned that the primary reason that Jerusalem had to be established is because God made promises, unconditional promises, to David. We looked at 2 Samuel 7. We looked at Psalm 89. And we saw that because God promised to set up his Davidic king in Jerusalem forevermore, that promise has to last And so that's why the book of Joel, when you get into chapter 3, you see the reestablishment of Jerusalem. Now, at the end, um, I don't have a PowerPoint, I guess, so I had a slide that was special to show you a chiasm in another book, a book of Isaiah, all about the establishment of Jerusalem. If we get the PowerPoint working, I'll show you that because it's not in your handout. But the establishment of Jerusalem and the fact that one day Messiah will reign from Jerusalem is something that the prophets focus on over and over and over because it is the culmination of all of God's promises. Now, I want you to turn from there then to looking at our fourth theme in the book of Joel, and that is that one day God is going to pour out his spirit. So if, you're, if you have your hand out, I'm turning to this idea that God is going to pour out his spirit on all people. Does everyone see that handout? Hopefully everyone has that. All right, now, one thing I want to do is I want to talk about how the promise of sending the Spirit was foretold all the way back in the law. So remember the division of the canon of Scripture. By the way, the term canon means standard. It doesn't have to do with artillery. So when we talk about canon, we're talking about a standard. It was like a reed, a measuring reed. Okay, so that's the idea. So when we're talking about the canon of the Old Testament, it had the Tanakh, the Torah, the law, the Navaim, the prophets, and the Kathavim, the writings. The law, the prophets, and the writings. So the law itself predicted that one day God would send his spirit upon all flesh. And I want you to see where that was foretold. Turn your Bibles, if you will, to Numbers 11, verse 29. Numbers eleven twenty-nine. As you're turning to Numbers 11, I just want to set the stage. Remember, this is where God is sending help for Moses. He can't govern all of the people himself. And so God establishes 70 elders, and he places his spirit upon these 70 elders. And if you notice, if you have your Bibles open to Numbers 11, notice in verse 25, I don't have the whole passage there, but if you notice in Numbers 11:25, the other 70 
that God pours his spirit upon. Notice it says they prophesied, but at the end of the verse it says they did not do it again. So, in other words, the 70 didn't become God's spokesman on par with Moses. But for one day, to show that they were also anointed, God allowed them to prophesy. And so it's in Numbers 11, if you remember, the 70 are prophesying. There was two men, Medad and Eldad. And they didn't make it into the tent of meeting. They never made it to the tabernacle. They were prophesying in the camp. Well, somebody comes rushing into Moses and says, hey, there's two men that are prophesying in the camp, and this bothers Joshua. Now, why does it bother Joshua that you have two men that are prophesying apart from Moses? Because he sees it as an attack on Moses' authority, who alone speaks for God. But how does Moses respond? Notice in Numbers eleven twenty nine, it says, But Moses said to him, so he's replying to Joshua's concern, he says, Are you jealous for my sake? Now listen to Moses' desire. Would that all of Yahweh's people were prophets, that the Lord would put his spirit upon them. So here's this great expectation from the law itself that Moses, the mediator of the old covenant, desires that one day God is going to send his spirit not just upon him and not just upon 70 elders, but upon all of God's people. That is the foretelling of the future event that we see at Pentecost. Okay, so right away in the law, there's an expectation that one day the Spirit isn't going to be just on the prophets. It's going to be on all the people of God. And sure enough, we see that fulfilled in the New Covenant. Now, how does that relate to the book of Joel? Well, notice in your second bullet point there, the promise was foreshadowed by the pouring out of rain. So let me set the stage. The book of Joel. Remember, there are three judgments in the book of Joel. You have the locust judgment. The locust judgment, it's probably the worst locust judgment that ever came upon the land of Israel. So this is a foreshadowing of a future judgment that was going to happen in the immediate future, which was the judgment by the Assyrians and the Babylonians, the army from the north. That's chapter 2 of Joel. But that was a foreshadowing of one day at the end, all the nations would surround Jerusalem in a battle. They would be like locusts, as it were, coming again to surround Jerusalem. And that's the battle where Jesus Christ is going to intervene. But what we see, notice in, I think it's Joel 2.23. Yeah, that's what I have in my notes. Joel 2.23, after the locust invasion, what does God do to show that he's healing the land? Joel 2.23, it says, For he has given you early rain for your vindication, and he has poured down for you the rain, the early and the latter rain as before. So part of the judgment, you got to get this in your mind. Remember, what were the curses back in Deuteronomy 28 for breaking covenant? God doesn't give them an agricultural crop. He sends locusts, and he doesn't send rain. So when they repent, what does he do to restore them? He sends rain, rain upon a parched land to give them their crops back. That sending of rain is a metaphor. It's real, but it's also a metaphor in symbolic of one day God would send out his spirit like rain. That's the importance of that. So the sending of physical rain to heal the physical land is real, but it's also highly symbolic of one day he's going to heal his people spiritually by sending like water his spirit upon them. 
Do you see that? So that's the foreshadowing of the coming of the rain. It was foretold in the, the law in Numbers. It's foreshadowed there in Joel 2.23. But look, look at the fulfillment. The fulfillment is seen in Joel 2.28. Joel 2.28. And remember, this is cited by Peter at Pentecost. So as we read Joel 2.28, Peter cites that verbatim at Pentecost. Verbatim. He says, this is what's being fulfilled in your hearing. So Joel 2.28, what's the great fulfillment of the pouring out of the Spirit? Notice the promise is, it will come about after this, that I will pour out my Spirit on all mankind. And your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. So let's go back to Numbers. What did Moses want? Moses looked forward to a day when it wasn't just the Spirit that came upon the prophets or him, the mediator of the Old Covenant, but it would come upon all of God's people. You see, in Joel 2.23, the foreshadowing of this with the pouring out of water. But now, Joel says, one day God is going to pour out his Spirit upon all people. It's not going to be limited just to the mediator of the Old Covenant. It's going to come upon all of them. Now, Peter claims that this is fulfilled in Acts 2.17 through 21. And here's what I want you to do. Turn your Bibles, if you will, to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, and we'll look at verse 22 first. I just want you to see how this is fulfilled in the, Old Te- in the, excuse me, in the New Testament. Acts 2.22. Now, as you're turning there, as you're turning to Acts 2.22, remember... The first Pentecost that occurred ever in the history of Israel occurred when Israel was brought to Sinai. So remember, Pentecost happens 50 days after the Passover. So at that time, at the Exodus, in Exodus chapter 12, God brings the Israelites out. By the time you see Pentecost occur, you're in Exodus chapter 32. Now listen carefully. The very first Pentecost is the giving of the law. What did the Israelites do that displeased God at Mount Sinai? They built the golden calf. Do you remember, according to Exodus 32:28, how many people perished at that first Pentecost, the giving of the law? It was 3,000. Now, in Acts 2:41, when you have the giving of the Spirit, a Pentecost where the Spirit's coming, not the law, how many people come to eternal life? 3,000. So what the law killed, the Spirit enabled. Why was the Spirit important or essential to bring people to saving faith? Because of the sin nature of man. You see, God didn't ask us to do anything impossible but to believe the word that was spoken. But because we're dead sinners in Adam, we can't do that. So when the law came, it was holy, it was righteous, it was good, just as Paul said in Romans chapter 7. The problem was us. The problem was our sin nature. So when the law came and it killed 3,000, it shows us that man can't do what God requires. So when the Spirit came and 3,000 come to life, it shows no salvation is only of God. That's the idea. That's how important the sending of the Spirit is. In fact, how important is the sending of the Spirit? To the Apostle Paul... It was the sine qua non, the essential ingredient without which you could not claim to be a partaker of the new covenant if you don't have the Spirit. The Spirit was what demarcated to him the new covenant. 
In fact, remember Paul says in Galatians chapter 3, he said in verse 3, how is it that you who began by the Spirit are now trying to be perfected by the flesh? Do, do you remember that? One verse earlier, this is Galatians 3, 2, Paul asked the important question, how is it that you received the Spirit? Was it by faith or by works of the law? That's how important receiving the Spirit was. In other words, why didn't Paul say, how is it that you were justified? How, which is important, by the way. How is it that you became born again? He doesn't ask that. How is it that you received the Spirit? That's how important the sending of the Spirit is in both the Old and the New Covenant. It's a big deal. Why? Because without the Spirit, no one could ever confess Christ. That's what we see in 2 Corinthians 12. No one can say that Jesus is Lord except by the Spirit. Okay? That's how big a deal it is. So let's look here at Acts 2.22. Acts 2.22. So remember, Peter has just cited verbatim Joel 2.28. And in Acts, that's in Acts 2.17 through 21, he cites that ending of Joel 2 where you'd see the sending out of the Spirit. And notice what his claim is. Acts 2.22, he says, Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. What Peter's claiming is that the sending of the Spirit that he just cited was made possible through the person and work of Christ. So it's Christ who brings this about. In fact, if you skip ahead to Acts 2:32, notice Acts 2:32 through 33, at the end of his message, what does he preach? The, the resurrection and ascension of Christ. So he begins with the person of Christ, the miracles that he does, and he ends with the person of Christ and the miracles that he does, namely his resurrection and ascension. So the gospel that Peter preaches is all about Christ, who he is and what he did. So what's the gospel? Well, the gospel Peter preached is all about who Christ is and what he did. And it always, as Bob mentioned in Acts, every message that you'll see of the gospel always has the resurrection. So notice in Acts 2.32 through 33, Peter says, This Jesus God raised up again, there's the resurrection, to which we are all witnesses. Now notice verse 33. Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God, And having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he, now this is Jesus, has poured forth this which you both see and hear. Wow. The claim that Peter is making is that the Spirit that came upon them was sent forth by the Son. Bob, do you remember when you were doing church history and studying that in seminary, there was that big debate in church history called the phililoquy. Yeah, and the son. Yeah, and the son, which is what it means. And there was a big debate in church history about whether the spirit proceeds from the father or the son. Do you want to just mention that and talk about what the divide was about? Well, the I think, isn't that the one that led to the Greek Orthodox? Yes. Heading off their own way. Yeah, absolutely. Well, there, the question was whether uh, the, how strongly the, the spirit is emphasized the greek orthodox wanted that yes because they're more direct the spirit right is at work but uh it's a silly argument because jesus said that he would send another comforter right exactly yeah so why deny what the bible obviously says right right well 
the Greek Orthodox thought God sends the Son, God the Father sends the Son, God the Father sends the Spirit. Right. And so that uh, otherwise, if the Son sends the Spirit, it would uh, put the Spirit below the Son right. in some way within the Trinity. Yeah. And they didn't like that. Yeah. They want everything to be a direct thing from the Spirit. Right. So they thought the Father sending the Spirit only would give the Spirit more prominence. Right. But when I studied it, I thought, well, what a dumb thing. Because <laughs> it says in the Bible <laughs> right. that the Son will send a Spirit. Yes. Yeah. So they were, So yeah. So Bob is laying out this big debate that happened in, in church history in the fourth century is over, does, is the Son sending the Spirit? Or does the Spirit sent alone by the Father? And this creates a split between the Western Church and the Eastern Church. They actually split over it. They split over that issue when, in fact, the Scriptures reveal it's both. Right. John fourteen twenty six, Jesus says that the Father would send another helper, the Comforter, the Paracletos, the Holy Spirit. But yet, here we see in Acts that Jesus is also involved in sending forth the Spirit. Yeah, and another thing that's important that the Greek Orthodox would be getting wrong yeah. is that the Holy Spirit testifies about Christ. Amen. So the Son sends the Spirit, but the Spirit confesses Christ. And we made a DVD back way back when. Now it's, I think, on YouTube. Yeah. Uh, where I went through all of the these verses in the New Testament in which the Holy Spirit comes upon somebody and they confess Christ. Yes. And Jesus says he, the Spirit, when he comes, will testify of me. Amen. And so what we did is we showed verse after verse after verse after verse that the Holy Spirit causes people to confess Christ yes. when they receive the Spirit. So the way you discern a true work of the Spirit is whether or not Christ is preached. That's right. And that's definitive. Yeah. And, and in, wherever that YouTube is, I, I know we have it out there. That is definitive. And you can use that. And so if you go to a meeting and they're saying Holy, Holy Ghost Power Meeting or whatever they call it, yeah. <laughs> and we're going to really have the Holy Spirit moving, and then a lot of things happen, then ask the question, did they confess Christ? Did they preach Christ? That's it. Did, and if not, I don't care what happened. It's not a work of the Spirit. Because right. he, the Spirit, when he comes, Jesus said, will testify of me. And so a lot of these people are confusing people by claiming, well, we got works of power, so it must be the Spirit. That's right. But... The real definitive thing is, is Christ confessed? Amen. I wanted That's to right. ask you, too. Uh, the, these numbers, they seem like they're significant. Yeah. Because we were in uh, numbers, and I said there were 70. Yeah. Well, Jesus and Luke sent out 70. 70, exactly. Not just the 12, but the 70. They sent out 70. Yeah. And I think the numbers are significant in the Bible. Absolutely. That's, that's a great point. Yeah, so you have 70 elders in Israel that are appointed to work for Moses, as it were. You have 70 that are working for Christ, the mediator of the new covenant. So the mediator of the old covenant has 70 working for him. The mediator of the new covenant has 70 that are working for him. Then he has his inner 12. And of the 12, he has the inner three 
Peter, James, and John, they go up on the Mount of Transfiguration. So yeah, I think the numbers are, are very significant. So yeah, so when the sending of the Spirit occurs, we don't have to argue about whether the Father sent the Spirit or the Son sent the Spirit. It's both and. We don't have to have a church split over that. Okay, um, Think about this. Jesus, who raised Jesus? Well, some passages say he was raised by the Spirit. Some say the Father did it. But remember, Jesus in John 10 says, no one takes my life from me. I have the power to lay it down. I have the power to take it up again. So the resurrection of Christ is also a Trinitarian affair. Okay, so we don't have to, we don't have to choose. Now, I want to show you uh, this pouring out of the Spirit and the, uh, likening it to water is a, a theme that you see all the way through the Old Testament prophets. Turn your Bibles, if you will, to Isaiah 44.3. Isaiah 44.3, because I want you to see it's not just Joel who uses the symbol or metaphor of water and likens that to the sending out of the Spirit. You see it in Isaiah 44.3. Now, in Isaiah 44.3, this is in a, a chiastic structure, in a, the, not the verse, but it's in a section from Isaiah 43.25 to Isaiah 44.5, that entire section is about how God is going to forgive the past and give them a glorious future. The reason I mention that is you, you look at Isaiah 44.3, what makes the glorious future of Israel possible? The sending of the Spirit. Okay, so the only good things that are ever going to occur, it's not going to come from man's ability. It's going to come from the sending of the Spirit. What did man accomplish at the first Pentecost at Sinai? Well, 3,000 dead. What did the Spirit of God accomplish? The Pentecost in Acts 2.41? 3,000 come to eternal life. So Isaiah 44.3, notice the promise, For I will pour out water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. Now stop there. That sounds a lot like what Joel 2.23 said, didn't it? Well, lo and behold, what does it go on to say in Isaiah 44, 3? He says, I will pour out my spirit on your offering and my blessing on your descendants. Dear ones, Joel does the same thing. Joel 2, 23, I'm going to send water on your parched land and give you back your crops. Joel 2, 28, I'm going to send the spirit upon you and enable you to believe and ultimately live. Isaiah is doing the very same thing. Yes, Bob. To reinforce that in yeah. John 7 at the Feast of Tabernacles. Yes. We have here in John seven thirty seven. it says, On the last and most important day of the festival, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone is thirsty, he should come to me and drink. Now, there was a water component to that. Absolutely. To that uh, feast. And then verse uh, 38, the one who believes in me, as the scripture said, will have streams of living water flow from deep within him. And he said this about the spirit, wow. that those who believed in Jesus were going to receive the spirit. Yes. So there is another reinforcement. And, you know, Eric, the more we see these things, yeah. I, the, whole, the Holy Spirit had to inspire the Bible. I don't think anybody could have figured it out. No, that's right. It was written over too many millennia with too many authors. That's right. To have this kind of consistency has to be a work of the Spirit. Amen. Well said. Um, Everyone, turn your Bibles to that passage. I want everyone just to see it with your own eyes. John 7, 37 through 39. Just so you see what Bob had read. 
John 7, 37 to 39. Bob's absolutely right. Jesus takes this imagery from the Old Testament. Ultimately, he's the author of it. He's God. And so he's building off of this. Now, remember, as you turn to John 7, this is during the Feast of Tabernacles. Bob just read that. It was the last day of the feast. There is some debate as to whether the last day of the feast... Oh, I'm sorry. Do you got something cooking? We may have something. The last day of the feast, there's some debate as to whether it was the seventh day or the eighth day. I think the best evidence, it was probably the eighth day. The seventh day feast, that's how long the Feast of Tabernacles was. And on the eighth day, there would be a holy Sabbath. And that's when they dismantled everything. It's probably on that day, as a summary of all these things, Jesus applies it to himself. Now, what's very interesting, remember what is the Feast of Tabernacles? What does it remember and celebrate? It remembers and celebrates how God tabernacled with the people of Israel in the wilderness. Now, what did he provide for them? Well, he certainly provided food, but he also provided for them what? Water. Now, Paul makes the point in 1 Corinthians 10, it was ultimately Christ in the wilderness that did that. He was the rock that followed them. He was the one who provided them water. So think of this. Jesus, the pre-incarnate Son, the second person of the Trinity, the Son, is giving the people water in the wilderness. Now, after his incarnation, he's in their presence. They're celebrating what he did for them in the wilderness. Are you with me? He gave them water. They're celebrating the fact that he tabernacled with them. So for seven days during this feast, there would be a great procession led by the high priest. The high priest would go down to the pool of Siloam. He would take a golden flagon, they called it. It was a big vase, and he would dunk it into the pool of Siloam, and he would put water on it, and he would bring it back to the altar in this big procession. And as the procession came into the temple... He would go through the water gate on the south side. They would go around the altar, and there would be a choir that was singing within the temple. What songs would they be singing? They'd be singing Psalm 113 through Psalm 118, the Hallel Psalms. Hallel means to praise God. Praise, right? The last of the Hallel Psalms, remember Psalm 118? One of the great lines in it, I think it's Psalm 118:26. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of of the Lord. That's a messianic phrase. Jesus leaves the temple desolate in Matthew 23 and he says, you won't see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of Yahweh. He's the fulfillment of that. So they're singing a messianic psalm, praise to God. It's all about Jesus. And then what do they do? They pour out the water because one day, yes, God did this for us in the wilderness. He gave us water. But one day when Messiah reigns from here, There's going to be living waters that flow from this temple, and it's going to give life to the entire world. And Jesus stands up the last day of that feast, feast, and he says, that's me. If you're thirsty and you want water that wells up to everlasting life, you come to me. And for that, what do they do? They stone him or try to. They, They try to kill him. They end up crucifying him. But he's the fulfillment of all of it. He's what it all leads to. In fact, turn your Bibles to Zechariah 14.8. I want you to see that in the millennial kingdom, when Jesus is reigning on the throne, what's depicted is proceeding from the throne in Jerusalem. But waters, living waters that are flowing from him. So all of this is connected to the sending of the Spirit, the work of God. Zechariah 14.8. 
This is what Jesus is foreshadowing in John 7. He says, and in that day, and remember, Messiah just wipes out all the enemies of Israel. That's Zechariah 14. The same thing is going to be told in Joel chapter 3. And it says, in that day, living waters will flow out of Jerusalem. Half of them toward the eastern sea. By the way, that's the Dead Sea. And the other half toward the western sea. That's the Mediterranean. It will be in summer as well as in winter. By the way, just jot this verse down, Ezekiel 47.8. The same thing is stated, but according to Ezekiel 47.8, the living water that proceeds from the throne of the Messiah from Jerusalem, when it reaches the Dead Sea, it'll bring life to the Dead Sea. The Dead Sea will live. Okay, that's one of the proofs, by the way, of the millennial kingdom. Right now, during the church age, the Dead Sea is as dead as a doornail. There's a lot of salt in it, and you don't have living fish. But remember, in the eternal states, remember when you have the new Jerusalem, the new heavens, the new earth? According to Revelation 21, there's going to be no more sea. So how is it that you're going to have then this reestablished sea that's going to have fish in it? Well, I think that's what necessitates the millennial kingdom. It's not happening now, and it's not going to happen in the eternal states. Therefore, there must be a millennial kingdom. Okay, But the big thing I want you to see here is that the sending of the Spirit, the pouring out in the image of water is a big deal in the New Testament. Is it any wonder then that when you and I are baptized, we're baptized in water? Part of the symbolism is the regeneration that God did for us by the Spirit. Yes? Isn't um, John 4, when Jesus is talking to the Samaritan woman, this is the same thing? Yes. He's the living water? Yes, absolutely, from the well, the same image. Exactly, great reading, Levon. very well, yeah, very well done. Same thing. Okay, so the sending of the Spirit is a big deal. Jesus is the one who does it, and it is what ushers in the new covenant. Now, I want to bring you to, notice my next point on this slide is Joel, as prophet, speaks for God. That's a big deal in the book of Joel, as it is in all the prophets, The prophet Joel is a prophet. He's a Navi. Now, there's some debate as to where the term Navi comes from, the term for prophet. Some scholars claimed that it had to do with a spring that would bubble forth. And the idea would be the prophet is the one who bubbles forth the very words of God. I don't think there's any proof to that. The one thing that the theological workbook of the Old Testament says is this. They say, quote, The essential idea in the word Navi for prophet is that of an authorized spokesman. Interpreters have found the basic thought not in the etymology, which is lost in the dust of antiquity, but in the general usage of the word, unquote. I think that's a helpful quote. What the theological workbook of the Old Testament is saying is that the way the term Navi is used in the Old Testament is for the prophet who speaks the very words of God. And that is exactly what Joel was claiming. He is the one who speaks for God. Okay, so with all those themes then, what I want to do is I'm going to switch PowerPoints and we won't have it on the screen, but I want you to turn to your next handout. I'm going to pull that up. So I'm looking at the same thing. What I want you to do is we're going to start looking at the locust invasion. So if you turn to that handout. We'll look at the locust invasion. We're just going to look at the first few verses here. Does everyone have that handout, by the way? I think it's right on this one. Oh, okay, good. 
Same handout? Good. Same one. Christy's very good that way. She usually is able to fit all sorts of things together. Okay. All right, so we're going to be looking at here this locust invasion. And the locust invasion goes from chapter 1, verse 2, all the way through verse 20. And remember, that is foreshadowing the coming of this northern army, which is going to be the Assyrian and one day the Babylonians. Now, I want to talk about one thing before we get started. And that is some scholars will claim that the locusts that come upon Israel that Joel is lamenting and prophesying about is the same as the Babylonians. In other words, the Babylonians are the locusts in chapter 2. There's three problems with that. And I just want to look at a couple, well, actually three different verses. First of all, I want you to see that there has to be a distinction between the locusts in chapter 1 and the human army that comes upon Israel in chapter 2 for three reasons. Number one, there's a phrase, notice in Joel 2.8, if you have your Bibles open, turn your Bibles to Joel 2.8. In fact, if somebody could read Joel 2.8. It says here, they do not push each other. Each man proceeds on his own path. They dodge the arrows and never stop and never stopping. Is that the one? Yeah, very good. Yeah, notice the term dodge there. Some of your versions may have burst through. Um, there's different ways of rendering this, but the term in Hebrew is shalah, and it always had to do with men in battle who were going through a gauntlet of spears, javelins, and arrows being thrown their way. So that's what the term has to do with. So let me ask you this. How many would shoot arrows or throw javelins and spears at locusts? Well, you don't do that. The reason I'm saying this now is to show you, yes, the enemy in chapter 2 is a human, em- en- a human enemy rather than a locust enemy of chapter 1. That's proof number 1. Proof number 2, in Joel 2, 1 through 11, you have a change of tense. So in Joel chapter 1, the Hebrew is primarily using verbs in the perfect. The perfect tense verbs in Hebrew typically denote things that have already occurred. So in other words, in chapter 1, what Joel is recounting is he's already seen, and they have, the Israelites have seen, the locust invasion. And Joel's claim is this is a day of the Lord. But it's only a foreshadowing of what God is going to do. So that's already occurred. But when you get into chapter 2, there's a shift to the imperfect tense, which has to do with things that are yet to come. That's why it's typically, I think, best seen, chapter 2, is looking forward to the Assyrian and Babylonian invasions, the armies that would come from the north. So again, chapter 1's locust, chapter 2 is human. The final, though, coup de grace to prove that there's a distinction between the locust, chapter 1, human army, chapter 2, is notice Joel 2.20. Notice Joel 2.20. Notice how the army is described as a northern army. Does everyone see that in Joel 2.20? The northerner, I might say, some of your versions. Remember the term for northern is zaphon. Again, not picking up zaphon, but that's what it is. It's, remember they talk about the recesses of the north? That's the idea, is zaphon. It's the idea that this enemy, when they come, they come from the north. Locusts aren't limited in that way. Locusts don't just come from the north, but the Assyrians and the Babylonians did. So for those reasons... We know that when we're looking at chapter 1, we're looking at locusts, 
we get to chapter 2, we're looking at a human army for those reasons, okay? So let's look at here at Joel 1.1. 1, 1. And notice the claim that Joel's making. He says, the word of Yahweh, remember the Lord all caps is Yahweh's name. That's his covenant name that he revealed to Moses at the burning bush in Exodus 3. Yahweh is his covenant name. It's a yiktol verb. I will be who I will be. I am who I am. I am. It stresses his eternality. So the word of Yahweh came to Joel, the son of Bethuel. Okay, so here Joel is claiming that he is speaking for God. He is making the claim that he is a Navi, he is a prophet. Now, I want you to understand that all the way through the prophets, whether it's Zechariah, whether it's Jeremiah, whether it's Isaiah, they all are making this claim. Let me give you some examples. Hosea 1.1, the word of Yahweh which came to Hosea, the son of Beeri. Okay, you see the same thing in Zechariah 1.1. Notice Zechariah says, in the eighth month, of the second year of Darius, the word of Yahweh came to Zechariah the prophet. There he specifically calls himself the Navi, the prophet. So over and over, these men in the Old Testament who are prophets are claiming they're speaking for God. The question is, what criteria were there to determine whether these men really were? Well, in the Old Testament, there was two criteria. The first criteria was that of a foretelling the second was a theological. I, should, I actually have those reversed. The first was a theological test. And the second was a foretelling test. So let's look at the test. I want to read these because they're important. And in fact, they're really applicable even today. We judge people, not that there are modern-day apostles and prophets, but we, the idea is that no one could meet this test. Deuteronomy 13, 1 through 5. Let's look at the theological test. Turn your Bibles to Deuteronomy 13. And what we're going to do is we're going to see there's a theological test. If some man claims to speak for Yahweh, and yet he leads the people into other doctrines away from Yahweh, even if he predicts the future, he's not to be listened to. Now, this becomes particularly important, I believe, in the 70th week of Daniel. Why? Because you're going to have someone on the scene of history who's going to do miraculous things, and yet he will be leading people away from the true doctrines of Christ. Deuteronomy 13, 1 through 5. Here's the theological test. Verse 1, it says, If a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or wonder, and the sign or wonder comes true concerning which he spoke to you, saying, Let us go after other gods whom you have not known, and let us serve them. Notice verse 3. You shall not listen to the words of that prophet or the dreamer of dreams, For Yahweh your God is testing you to find out if you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. You shall follow the Lord your God and fear him. And you shall keep his commandments, listen to his voice, serve him, and cling to him. Now notice in verse 5 it says, But the prophet or that dreamer of dreams shall be put to death, because he has counseled rebellion against Yahweh your God, who brought you up from the land of Egypt, And redeemed you from the house of slavery to seduce you from the way in which Yahweh your God commanded you to walk. So you shall purge the evil from among you. So if some man rose up from amongst the ranks of the Israelites, and even if his signs and wonders or he said something that came true, he was not to be listened to. Oh, thank you. Do you guys have a breakthrough? We can get the projector. Okay. So we're trying a different projector. Sure. So that would be the 
theological test in Deuteronomy 13. We'll see if this works here. Now, I want you to turn your Bibles. Let's look at the foretelling test for the prophet. Turn your Bibles to Deuteronomy 18, 20 through 22. Deuteronomy 18, 20 through 22. Now, Deuteronomy 18, remember, this is right after Moses predicts that there's going to be a successor from Israel. That's Deuteronomy 18, 15. They will come up from the ranks of the Israelites. And if the people won't listen to him, it's going to be required of them. That's the one who Jesus fulfills. Jesus fulfills that passage. But notice in Deuteronomy 18, 20 through 22, this is the foretelling test. It says, But the prophet who speaks a word presumptuously in my name, which I have not commanded him to speak, or which he speaks in the name of other gods, that prophet shall die. So again, if he's speaking presumptuously, he's not speaking for Yahweh, he's to die. So do you see then, it takes a lot of temerity to say, thus saith Yahweh. Because what was at stake if you claimed to speak for the Lord? Your very life. Now, today, there's a lot of people who say, well, I speak for God. I mean, they say it. I was speaking to God the other day. God was telling me. God was telling me the other day, and they say it so willy-nilly. But I want you to realize that for someone to claim to speak for God under the Old Covenant, it was a big deal, a very big deal. So he says again, But the prophet who speaks a word presumptuously in my name, which I have not commanded him to speak, or which he speaks in the name of other gods, that prophet shall die. You may say in your heart, How will we know the word which Yahweh has not spoken? Notice verse 22. When a prophet speaks in the name of Yahweh, if the thing does not come about or come true, that is the thing which Yahweh has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously, you shall not be afraid of him. So if someone says something is going to come about in the future, and it doesn't, they're not from God. What would that have done for evangelicalism to take that when you had for... I remember how many years, Bob, there's always someone saying, Jesus is coming back. Um, in 1988, you've probably seen that over the years as being a pastor. There was 88 reasons why Jesus is coming back in 1988. Well, think about it. If you say something is going to come about and it's not true... You're falsely speaking for God under, under the Old Covenant. It's a big deal. It's a real big deal. So, um, oh, I've got something going on here. My uh, words are off my screen, so I might have to get a handout too. So we have some input, though, going in there, so that's something happening. Okay, something's going on with my computer. So, sorry, Eric, go ahead. So that's how we know that a prophet spoke for Yahweh. We have the... the yeah. Eli- yep, it's back. Okay. Thank you. This is just a little bit loose. Oh, I'm sorry. Screw it in. Gotcha. So, Should I put her in? But I think I've actually got it. I've got a signal now. Oh, okay, great. I did. Oh, I just put it back in. All right. We have it. Give us five minutes. Yeah, no, that's fine. <laughs> Soon as Sunday school's done. Yeah. That's all right. So what I'm doing now is I'm just, oh, I'm sorry, Eric, yeah. have got a lot going on with all the technical problems here. That's but, all right. So I don't want to throw anything. Maybe you're going to be covering this later, you know. But yeah. even nowadays, we've got all these people who claim to be prophets, you know. And, yep. And they talk about, you know, the, in the latter days, your sons and your daughters will prophesy, and your young men will see visions, and your old men will dream dreams. Yes. And so 
we have to we have to kind of deal with that because there's a lot of people that are claiming to speak for God that don't and right in our day right now. It's, maybe you're going to be covering that as we go through Joel, so I don't want to get Absolutely, ahead, we can but. come back to that. Um, but Bob actually wrote a very helpful article in CIC about the functional sense in which we can prophesy today. And it's right away, it's from 1 Corinthians 14. So think of it this way, to get our paradigms around prophets and apostles or apostles and prophets, Think about what Bob taught us in Ephesians 2.20. Ephesians 2.20 says the church has been built. It's an aorist tense verb, so it's typically in the past. Has been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus being the cornerstone. So think of the image that Paul is using for this one new man, this new temple, as it were, that God is building. It's built on a foundation of apostles and prophets. Notice that word order in Ephesians 2.20 is important. He does not say it was built on the foundation of the prophets and apostles. That would seem to indicate the Old Testament prophets and New Testament apostles. But because he uses apostles and prophets, he's probably referring to the New Testament offices that were available only in the first century. Now here's the point. If you're going to lay a foundation for a building... Well, the rest of the building is built upon that, but you don't keep putting a new foundation in. You only have one foundation. And so in that imagery, you see that this foundation of the apostles and prophets has been completed. Now, who would be a prophet holding to that office in the first century with the other apostles? Well, one example from the book of Acts is Agabus. Agabus, by the way, predicts future events. Now, Paul doesn't acquiesce to some of the things that Agabus says because he's an apostle. In other words, he was, what was Agabus saying that he couldn't do? He was going to die. We were talking about that earlier. Yeah, why don't you mention that, Bob? Well, it's a very intriguing, Maya? Yeah. It's a very intriguing section where they said that if Paul went up to Jerusalem, remember he took and bound him with his yeah. belt, and uh, that he was going to suffer and be attacked in Jerusalem, and there was danger there. And so they were begging Paul not to go. Well, Agabus was correct about what happened in Jerusalem. But Paul went. So the question is, why did Paul go when Agabus was saying not to? And they were begging him. But yeah. there's a little hint here. Yeah. Because later Paul says, why are you weeping and breaking by heart? Yeah. Because I'm willing to not only to go testify, but even to die. And then, you know what they said? Okay, they acquiesced, the will of God be done. Remember that? Yes. Am I correct about that? Yeah. Norm asked me about that one before Sunday school. So we were talking about, because you brought that up, I went back and looked in Luke and see the foreshadow in there. There's another interesting event in Luke where Jesus is praying as he's, contemplating suffering in Jerusalem. Yeah. And he dies there. He said, if it's possible, take this cup form, uh, from me, but when he's praying to the Father, but not my will, but thine. Done, yeah. Remember that one? Yes. That's a little difficult theologically. Yeah. Because he and the Father are one, but yet in his humanity, yeah. there's a desire not to go through the suffering. Right. But the will of the Father was that he would go. And 
I think that's a little bit of a foreshadow. Of what Paul goes through. Of what Paul's going through. Yeah. You know, Tannehill has some good material on that. Yeah. Paul's journey to Jerusalem to suffer and be rejected. Thematic in Luke Acts is that Jerusalem rejects the prophets that God sends to her. Yes. And that Jesus and his apostles are such people who are rejected because yeah. they don't want to listen to God. Yes. And the will of God, I believe, was that Jesus would go and die there. We know that. Yeah. And I think we're not saying that Paul disobeyed the Holy Spirit by going. Right. He was just warned. Because they, he was warned about what would happen. Right. He wasn't prohibited. And even those who were begging him not to go said, the will of the Lord be done. That's right. So Paul went in the will of the Lord, just like Jesus said, nevertheless, not my will, but thine. And so the prophets in the New Testament have a unique status. That's right. But we're not denying the validity of what Paul taught to the whole church in First Corinthians 14. That's right. You may all prophesy one by one, let the others judge, two or three at a time. That's right. And so we distinguish between the office, the foundation uh, in Ephesians 4, and the function, because when the Holy Spirit comes upon someone, they preach Christ, they speak of Christ. And so valid biblical prophecy by the Spirit that can be done even today is anyone pre speaking forth from Scripture yeah. the truth of God, including the personal work of Christ. That's right. That still goes on. Yes. And we still are a, king, a kingdom of priests, prophets and priests. Yeah. And so I wrote an article about that and made those distinctions. The reason we had to deal with it is because the New Apostolic Reformation and the Latter Rain Movement get it wrong. Bob, do you remember what article number that is or the name of it? You know how I don't. You know how I find things in my own you website. You Google it. In on the website is a little box. Right. Called search. search. It. Yeah. You just search our page. Yeah. Go in there and type prophets. Yeah. Very good. So we wrote about it. That's right. Yeah. Very. Good. It's a very helpful article. Let me let me address a little bit more of it as well. So in Ephesians 2.20, you have the apostles and prophets. So who are the prophets? Well, Agabus is an example. Now, Agabus is an important example because he's predicting the future. So he's fulfilling the test that you would have, for example, in Deuteronomy 18. He's saying something, and it's coming about. So he's not speaking presumptuously, and he's not leading people astray. He's not failing the Deuteronomy 13 test. But who else would be prophets in the New Testament? Well, think about Luke. Luke gives us the very words of God under the new covenant, but was he an apostle? No, he was not an apostle, but he was under apostolic authority. Now, whose apostolic authority was he under? More than likely, the apostle Paul's. What about Mark? Mark was also not an apostle, but yet he write, reads, excuse me, writes the very words of God that we read. Whose authority was Mark under? It was Peter, the apostle. So do you see then that the apostles and prophets go hand in hand in the new covenant? So when we're talking about apostles and prophets, the office, no person can claim to have that office today. Why? Because remember the four criteria for the apostle. Number one, you were called personally and objectively. Number two, you were an eyewitness to the resurrection, 1 Corinthians 9.1. Third, you did miraculous deeds to prove that you were a spokesman for Christ, an apostle. And fourth, 
you were personally instructed by Christ. Because no one can claim that today, you don't have apostles, and therefore you don't have prophets under their authority. So in 1 Corinthians 14, when Paul says you may all prophesy one by one, let two or three judge, the idea is you don't judge Isaiah. You don't read Isaiah and say, well, let's stand in judgment of him. So the prophesying that's being done by you and I, we're doing it right now. It's valid implications and applications that come from Scripture. We're prophesying not as prophets in the office, but in a functional sense. Let me give you an analogy. I thought about this analogy some time ago. You know, there's a big debate right now about the Second Amendment, and there there probably always will be with the left. But here's one thing I thought of. I have a carry permit. I carry a pistol at times. And I thought about this over the years as I'm not ordained by the civil authorities to go out and arrest anyone. That's not the purpose. I'm not a police officer. I'm not going to pull anyone over. If someone calls 911, they're not going to call Eric Dalman. I'm not going to go to the bank. But if someone tries to harm you or some innocent person or my family, all of a sudden I'm deputized. I'm in a functional sense like a, not that I'm a police officer, but I'm going to try to restrain evil. Not, I'm not a police officer, but I'm functionally acting like one because there's not one on the scene. In the same way, when you and I are talking about the implications and applications of Scripture, we are not supplanting the apostles and prophets, but we are functionally doing their work. We're using their words, what they gave to us, and we're doing the work in a derived sense. And we're given that a very authority. So as long as we're giving implications and applications that flow from the scriptures, we're having the very authority of the apostles and prophets. Why? Because they're the ones, it's their words that we're using. And they were the ones who were ordained by Christ. So, Eric, does that help then? So you have apostles and prophets, those offices once and for all. We're never going to have it again. That's why in Jude 3, we're to contend for the faith once and for all handed down to the saints. It's not morphing, not changing, etc. But you and I prophesy in the functional sense and using their words. And that's the way. And Bob makes it very clear in the article. The article is very good. um, So I hope everyone avails themselves of that. Uh, The name of the article is The Prophetic Calling of Every Believer. Oh, very good. Yes, that that was a very good one. Yeah. So uh, I'm sorry, Nancy. Yes. Yeah. Um, This has been very timely because I happened to, this past week, walk into a Christian Singles Bible study on experiencing God yeah on the chapter God speaks yeah. and they all these people were hearing words from God and yeah. and I shared with them what you have been talking about he has, he has spoken we hear from God through his word and um, they really didn't want to hear that because they'd all heard from God so <laughs> but right. anyways it's very interesting it's everywhere that very well said. So the problem is, is once you say, no, you aren't, and they're claiming to speak for God, then what they set you up as is you're blaspheming God, you're quenching the spirit, and you're doing all these, these things. The problem with is they don't match the criteria that was given to the apostles. I stayed there with them. Yeah, absolutely. So, no, you're absolutely right. And that's how we know that God has spoken authoritatively. Dear ones, think about this. If everyone could speak for God in the sense of an apostle and prophet, the doctrines would always be changing. You would never know what the moral will of God is. R.C. Sproul illustrated that some years ago when he said, you know, he had someone 
told him that the Lord had told him that he should move to Pennsylvania. And someone else was speaking, and the Lord was telling them that he should move to Kentucky. And he said, well, that day the Lord must have been confused because I was getting two conflicting reports as to where I was to go. The point is, they weren't speaking for God. It was their own idea, but it wasn't from God. Yes, Bob? Yeah, we have an article about that as well. Good. Called uh, Personal Words from God. Mm. How people become false prophets to their own selves. Yes. Now, yeah. what um, I claim in the article is that this may sound spiritual, but these people who are getting supposed revelations, go here, don't go there, buy this, don't buy that, um, are really got bad categories, and they're restricting Christian liberty. Yes. And they're asking the wrong question. The question is, is it, well, God told me to buy a Ford and not a Chevy. Uh, yeah. And then whatever they're word they're getting. The question is, am I bound by something? Bind means bound by God's law, or am I free? That is, I have liberty to choose. Okay? And so, the people who have the personal worship of God, they, they really spiritual people, have basically no liberty. That's right. Because God's telling them everything they should do. Because yeah. they have a secret how to hear from God. And they literally think that this ability to hear from God is like Midas touch. Mm, yeah. You know, if they start a business, it always succeeds. Uh, everything they try to do always turns good. Because God wouldn't send them anything bad, would he? And so it's all confusing. So I wrote an article clarifying the categories. A lot of people have emailed and said that it was liberating. Because rather than living with guilt, thinking, I didn't hear from God, yeah. and I should have, we just have the liberty to make decisions and deal with whatever turns out or doesn't turn out. It's part Very of good. freedom as Christians. Absolutely. And the binding and loosing that you talk about in that article, don't you? In, uh, from, oh, that's another article. Okay, gotcha. Oh, Matthew, the are <laughs> I, I gotta confess something. I wrote all these articles because I did everything wrong. <laughs> I mean, when I see a problem that I, it was a problem for me to research it and write an article. So you are free. But the prophesying in 1 Corinthians 14 is about Christ and the gospel. Amen. Not, uh, you should. If your name is Bill, you should marry Susie. That's right. Or whatever. That's right. Or what job to get or where to live or whatever. That's all within our liberty. And God is getting us to the right place at the right time through providence. Another category you need to know. That's right. Not direct revelation from the Spirit. Amen. Bob, um, I'll have you pray for us. But one thing I just want to have you leave us all with. Remember there was a professor who said the best we can claim is a sanctified yeah. idea. Yeah, Dr. Levang said, sometimes we have a sanctified thought. A sanctified thought. Yeah, that's Nancy, what he called that's it. that's the best we can Well, claim. I would look at it like I get an idea to write a certain article and it turns out to be good. Yeah. Well, I'm going to give God the glory. Thank you, Lord. That's right. Uh, but I decided to write it. I'd call that a sanctified thought. It's yeah. kind of a good idea. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thanks, Bob. Let's, uh, you want me to pray? Yeah, that'd be great. Thank you. <laughs>
Thank you, dear Lord, for Eric's hard work to, to study and teach us about your word and how you have spoken. And may we encourage one another in the faith and be bold in the gospel, we ask. And pray that you, you'd be with us as we have a service upstairs. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thanks, Bob.